Henry Ting and John, thanks so much for joining me today on the Diamond Hill Investment Roundtable. In previous episodes of this series, we've discussed the massive disruptions brought about by the COVID pandemic, subsequent reopening, and then followed that up with a discussion on inflation and supply chain issues. Today, we're going to focus on the shift higher that we've seen in interest rates since the beginning of the year. By comparison, the first quarter of last year saw the longer end of the curve climb significantly higher while the shorter end remained anchored thanks to the Fed. This year, the move higher has been much broader based occurring across the entirety of the yield curve. So Henry, let's start with you and then we'll move over to Yiting and John. Uh, how different has it been for the fixed income markets and for Yiting and John, your areas of coverage comparing the start of last year to this year? Yeah, uh, so start, I mean, to your point, Doug, you mentioned that uh, the rates, we're, we're, the yield curve is drastically different, right? Uh, to start of last year, we we're roughly about like 17 basis point on the two year, about 92 basis point on the 10 year. You know, fast forward till the end of the year, uh, the two year went up to 72 basis points, uh, 10 year went up to one half. And, but then to start this year, right? So that took a whole year to get that about roughly 55 basis point rise in the two year. But to start this year, you know, two year went from 72 basis point to almost 2%, right? That was 130 basis point rise in less than three months. And the 10 year, you know, went up about 60 bips last year, entire year, and went up about just 60 basis point this year from 1.5% to 2.1% in two and a half months. Uh, so that I mean that's that's how quickly the the rate has gone up, uh, you know, two and a half months versus the entire year there. Uh, and the other thing too, from a uh, spread environment, uh, if you if we think about think back to 2021, uh, we were still kind of coming out of the COVID pandemic. There were still sectors that kind of lagged in terms of recovery. Uh, that was kind of its final push to kind of get back to quote unquote normal or pre-COVID levels. Uh, so we saw that taking place in most of January and very early part of February. So that was kind of, we were kind of still in that recovery mode. Uh, now this year, it's it's uncertainty that got introduced in the fourth quarter, the liftoff, right? When's the Fed's gonna lift off? How are they gonna do it? So really started late in the year, late in 2021, we started seeing spreads winding out. There were people getting a little bit uh, skittish to put money to work. Uh, I think, you know, there were still, so the reason people are not investing now for the spreads, the spreads reversal spreads winding back out is more the fear of uncertainty uh, and less has to do with COVID related. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of the big difference between what, the start of last year and this year, the recovery versus now it's uncertainty um, and very different concerns, certainly. Yeah, John and John and Yiting, I'll, I'll kick it over to you guys to talk about your areas of coverage. So you both cover financials. Uh, you know, what are, your, what are you seeing with your companies, with the market, with regards to what we've seen on the interest rate side? I think Henry hit it perfectly with that word uncertainty. I mean, if you look at 2021 for the bank stocks in particular, you know, throughout the year and coming out of 2021, you know, the market was quite optimistic uh, for fundamentals following a very strong year for the bank stocks uh, in 2021. You know, we had you know, light at the end of the tunnel for COVID and, you know, what that meant for the economic outlook and coincidentally, you know, the, the credit quality there for the banks following, you know, with a strong economy. You know, there's optimism for loan growth uh, following this wall of liquidity uh, due to the government response to COVID. And then 
you know, coming to this year, then you had, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and you know, the dramatic rise and uncertainty that caused in the economy, the outlook for rates, energy prices, you know, all these things that we felt, you know, were, were reasonably stable and setting up for a great year for 2022 for the banking space, uh, all kind of got turned on their heads. So banks have simply been volatile year to date, uh, trying to digest all of that. And, you know, depending on which index you want to look at for the bank stocks, they're all kind of roughly flat as we try to figure out kind of where we're going from here. Yeah, so my my world is a little different in the sense that, um, so first of all, I cover international banks, um, not just uh, developed market, but also international uh, EM, so emerging markets as well. So uh, in terms of what you guys said, um, I would say there are some similarities, but also some differences. Uh, you know, we talked about how monetary policies and actions, um, you know, what happened to Fed. Um, you know, I've seen some of my country coverages, such as Bank of England, moving similarly as what the Fed has done in terms of rate hikes um, a few this year. But then I've also seen, say, there is no consensus as of right now in terms of uh, what the ECB is likely to do going forward, again, due to the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict or situation. There was overall consensus prior to that conflict. And just like how the banks have moved uh, in Europe or Eurozone is uh, everybody was very much getting excited about the recovery from COVID, strong capital levels, uh, buybacks and return to shareholders in terms of those capital levels and potentially rising rate in the Eurozone. That's coming into the Russian-Ukraine conflict, but then the conflict happened. And that whole narrative has pretty much been uh, temporarily thrown out of the window for now or put in doubt at least. Uh, so there is no consensus um, as of now in terms of what the ECB for sure will do. Uh, I think um, you know providing monetary support and liquidity is probably the primary uh, motive or kind of uh, goal for the ECB as of now in terms of the Eurozone economy, just because that's more implicated by the Russia-Ukraine situation. So, so there's a little bit of a similarity there in terms of kind of Eurozone banks versus um, you know, what's happening in the US. However, there are some differences in the markets I cover as well, because I talked about some of the EM markets, right? Um, so EM central bankers, in addition to kind of their domestic inflationary pressure they need to kind of contain, they also do also need to worry about financial stability and currency stability. So what has happened in some of the EM markets is that they actually have moved ahead of the Fed in terms of rate hikes. So, you know, some of the large EM markets like Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Peru, they've had hikes and not just one, but several. And actually a few of those markets are probably coming off tail end, if not close to the tail end of interest rate hikes already, just due to the several mandates that their central bankers have to be aware of, not just in terms of domestic inflation, but also financial stability and currency stability. So, you know, banks in those markets, um, depending on which market we're talking about, um, have done, some of them have done really well. So it really, differs by market and it's hard to generalize. So definitely some similarities in what you guys have talked about, but also some differences as well. So Henry, one of the things that uh, is, is obvious is that <clears throat> institutions that are looking to, to secure financing in the, in the fixed income world, uh, they can do it much cheaper. Obviously they've done it much cheaper over the last couple of years. Have you seen uh, issuers, whether corporate or in the securitized market, kind of speeding up plans 
to get into the market to kind of lock in this cheaper financing before rates continue any kind of climb higher? Uh, yes and no. Uh, to, in, a, in a sense, like there are opportunistic issuers that would like to take advantage of the lower rates environment. Uh, they have definitely tried to, but some of them have definitely been deterred by the higher spread that investors are demanding nowadays. So they have kind of, you know, took their deal to the market, uh, shopped around and then said, okay, we it's not worth it. And they pulled it back, right? Uh, you, have, you have programmatic issuers that can't really time it. You know, if you think about commercial mortgage lenders, uh, if you think about, you know, like auto issuers, they, they can't really, they will constantly be, you know, underwriting these loans. So they can't really time the market. So they have to program programmatically issue three, four or five times a year. Uh, so those guys, you know, they just they have to hedge their interest rates. Uh, obviously, like, you know, commercial lenders uh, perspective, they, they, they're they able to pass that on to the borrower. So it's less of a concern for them from that perspective. Uh, one thing I, I do want to add is, uh, despite the fact, you know, we're recording this now two days after the Fed, uh, there's still a ton of uncertainty out there. Uh, it's still not clear the path of what the Fed's going to do. It left it pretty open-ended as to uh, what their asset reduction plan may be. Uh, so there, there's still a lot of question mark. And, and even bigger question mark uh, in my mind is, will we, will we be able to successfully fix the supply chain issues that we're facing? You know, the feds can only impact the, the demand side of the equation, but not the supply side of the equation. Uh, so ultimately where that goes from here um, could really determine the tra trajectory of the economy. So I just want to throw that out there as well. Yes, thank you. Um, so one of the things that we've repeatedly talked about on this podcast uh, is the focus on long-term horizons and the determination of intrinsic value driving our investment decisions in the equity market. So Yiting and John, this, this question is for you. What adjustments do you make to your determination of intrinsic value to accommodate the uncertainty uh, in the future path of interest rates? I'll start off. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. The path of rates is highly uncertain, uh, which is why I believe we benefit from our long-term perspective. And then we think about, you know, kind of what what's the path of rates through a cycle, not just you know what's it going to be in 2022 or 23, but over the five-year horizon as that relates uh, to the banks that we're we're valuing. Specifically, in your question of estimating intrinsic value, uh, one of the key inputs for the banks in those valuations is the net interest margin which is simply the spread between what they earn on loans and securities, less kind of what they pay on deposits and other liabilities. So our thinking about rate impacts, um, the rate impact is on our normalized net interest margins through that cycle. Now, if you look at margins right now, margins for the industry, you know, depending on the bank will likely bottom this quarter next, depending on how far the, and then depending on how far the Fed goes in this hiking cycle, margins will actually probably exceed our normalized assumptions you know, probably next year sometime, mid next year. One thing I've been wrestling with is this excess liquidity I mentioned earlier in the system and the impact on what we view as normalized margins. You know, over the last two years, margins have been below uh, what we would expect, would have expected, uh, but earning asset growth has massively exceeded expectations. That's due to this influx of liquidity. So with the influx of liquidity combined with modest demand for loans, banks have either had to hold more cash or securities versus loans, which has dragged down that net interest margin. So while the outside, outside growth and earning assets, net interest, 
interest income dollars, which make up over 75% of revenue for banks is actually held up okay, you know, despite this margin pressure. So you're trying to balance those two. No one knows, including many of the bank CFOs, uh, what will happen with this excess liquidity. If it sticks around, our long-term normalized margin assumptions now could prove to be too high. However, uh, if that is the case, our earning asset growth assumptions will likely prove to be too low. So it's this balance that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about uh, when considering my estimate of intrinsic value and the variables differ wildly from bank to bank, depending on the structure of their balance sheet, loans, et cetera. Yeah, I would uh, sort of echo what John just said. Again, our uh, horizon, our investment horizon is much longer. Um, we usually model and forecast everything on a five-year basis. So that's, first of all, it's not just what happened to policy or short-term interest rate by central bankers today or in the near term that's important. It's over the full interest rate cycle, right? They go up, they remain, they might come down. So um, so that's that's point number one. And then also um, I mentioned earlier, um, I don't just cover one particular market. So I don't follow you know, central bank or monetary policies and stance just for one particular market. I, I have a lot that are within my coverage and they are all at different phases in terms of where they are on the interest rate hiking cycle. Some have already moved, some didn't. And that's across the EM and DM market uh, across the board. And then uh, lastly, I just want to say, um, I think like there's a lot of intense focus on what the central banks are doing, path of interest rate, how that impacts banks' margins, and what that impacts to banks' top-line revenue growth and net interest income. That's all true, but then uh, that's just one of many factors in terms of our uh, forecast and modeling in terms of net interest margin for banks um, and then central banks action, how that impacts banks normalized net interest margin. So there are many other factors that I consider when trying to understand a bank and trying to um, come up with the estimate of intrinsic value for a bank uh, across different markets. For example, um, differ by market, the banking penetration of a particular country vastly differ. So the loan growth prospect of one country versus another vastly different. Competition, are they oligopolistic versus highly fragmented, extremely fearful, one, one country versus another? Very different across my market, the regulatory environment for a particular country versus a particular bank. So, and then of, of course, we just talked about impact to uh, net interest margin for a bank, composition of loan mix, floating rate, fixed rate, you know, short end curve, long end curve, uh, deposit funding base, all these things uh, contribute to essentially, you know, my forecast for the future um, in coming up with the estimate of intrinsic value. So it's not just one factor, it's several factors in input in trying to understand the business model. And we always try our best to find high quality compounders over cycle. And that's all cycles, right? That's not just interest rate cycle up and down. That's interest rate cycle, business cycle, um, credit cycle. So asset quality cycle, you need to be aware of that too for a particular bank. So it's not just one cycle, one input. It's uh, all cycles. And we have a lot of factors that we consider when analyzing banks. Just, yeah. So one of the impacts of rising rates for the fixed income market is the accompanying extension and duration or interest rate sensitivity for mortgage-backed securities. Specifically, as rates climb, homeowners are less and less incented to refinance their mortgages, 
which leads to those existing mortgages having longer and longer duration, making them even more sensitive to interest rate movements. Henry, what are some ways to mitigate that risk of duration extension for investors that hold an allocation to mortgage-backed securities? Well, that really comes down to you know security selection. Um, you know, we definitely viewed. Uh, you know, if, if you talk about extension, you're really talking about you know the 30-year to two and a halfs. That was the issue that during the pandemic when mortgage rates hit all-time low. Um, you know, like there were. Even if you owned bonds backed by those collateral, that doesn't mean that you, you're going to have the same sort of extension uh, because you can buy CMOs that has a structure to kind of protect you against that. Uh, so that, that's one way one way to protect yourself is really just, well, that's probably the best way is find securities that has those sort of protection in place. Uh, then, you know, secondly, it's about, you know, portfolio construction, uh, because you're not just only one or two of these uh, securities. Hopefully you have a well-diversified portfolio and and hopefully your portfolio are not all expressing the same view, um, you know, same sort of interest rate bias. So if you have a well-balanced portfolio that has that has good structure in place, then that, that can really buffer you against this sort of um, extension risk that you're taking. And I think also over time that even if you didn't do this, if you already own a portfolio that's loaded with the sort of security that's going to extend over time, it should also come down a little bit as more issuance in higher rated uh, mortgages that's going to become bigger part of the index. I think what's going to really happen going forward in the index is uh, if you look at the the percentage of treasury versus mortgage in the index, we have seen mortgage really dwindle compared to treasury. Uh, but because of all these, you know, Fannie twos, two and a half, so that's going to stay in the index for a very long time. The index percentage, uh, the, so the percentage of mortgages in the index should continue to increase here uh, for for in the foreseeable future uh, until we get to a point where, uh, you know, these two, two and a halfs make up a smaller percent of the market. But that's probably going to be a few years down the road. <laughs> these things will pay pretty, pretty, pretty slow for a while. So I know we're here to talk about interest rates and their impact on your industries, but you know I wouldn't be a very good host if I didn't take the opportunity to ask both Eating and, and John about the impact to their coverage universe of the ongoing sanctions against Russia. Henry, you get to take a pass on this one since you're managing only U.S. assets, but don't be shy about chiming in about implications to the U.S. fixed income market if you'd like. So let's start with John, uh, and then and then we'll pass it around, kind of pass it around the room. Yeah, on the domestic side, I would expect uh, very modest, if any, impact for the regional or community banks that I primarily cover, um, you know, especially on a kind of a first order basis. If you want to think about kind of second order, you know, a company like ours, like BOKF, that has a large energy business, you know, that should benefit from a credit standpoint uh, from higher oil prices and what that could mean for loan demand and their energy business. Um, but I would expect very modest um, kind of direct impact. But we should learn more in the next three to four weeks as companies start reporting earnings if um, people start commenting on that. Yeah, I, I guess I'll chime in a little bit. Um, so there are currently sanctions in place and potential tit for tad negotiations that could expand the sanctions. And there's also self sanctions by uh, Western corporates in general, um, just I, I guess severing ties with uh, Russian businesses or corporates or consumers. So, so I'll lump it all together, sanctions in place, potentially more sanctions and self sanctions, I'll call it together sanctions. Um, I, I guess 
you know, I'll talk about bank exposure first, and then I'll chime in a little bit just about the international portfolio overall, just because it doesn't just impact our, our banks, um, impacts some of our other businesses that we own within the international portfolio. So I guess in terms of a high level, in terms of banks, um, so global and European banks, um, they are starting to disclose uh, more detailed information. It's a work in progress, um, you know, like just because everything was happening so fast. Um, so they are giving more data, more information in terms of their direct exposure to Russia. And, and they can have uh, exposure to Russia via several different ways. One, they can have sub subsidiaries that operate in Russia. Um, they can extend cross-border loans to Russian corporates, right? And then a lot of European global banks hold Russian sovereign bonds or have some sort of a derivatives. And then lastly, they can lend to domestic corporates, these, these banks, but then their domestic corporate or borrowers have counterparty risks to Russian corporates. So those are a few different ways that you have, you can potentially have direct or indirect exposure to Russian corporates or Russian consumers. Um, and within my coverage, uh, some of the names that have direct exposure to Russia, of course, are going to be your Hyphen Bank in Austria, Sakchen in France, Unicredit in Italy, et cetera, which we don't own any of these banks. And the banks that we do own within the international portfolio does not have any uh, direct exposure to Russia whatsoever. So in that sense, uh, we're very lucky. And then of course, for those banks, even with direct exposure to Russia, you can run stress test scenarios. Just, you know, one, get the exposure, two, assume total impairment, total loss, and see what that does to your bank capital levels. Um, and of course, these are never perfect analysis, but it gives you some framework, some idea of potential losses and worst case, even for those banks that are negatively implicated. So that's in terms of banking, overall exposure. And again, our direct, our bank holdings has zero exposure. And then just in terms of kind of um, Russia exposure for the international portfolio, even though Russia is part of our international benchmark or index. Luckily, we have zero direct exposure to Russia. And what that means is we made zero investment in Russian companies listed in Russia or elsewhere. So that's direct exposure for international portfolio, zero. But there are global corporates because we own global businesses, right? I mean, global corporates that sell into Russia. So think of um, Nestle. It's a global company. It sells to pretty much all countries. It's going to doom to have some exposure to Russia. And luckily, um, Nestle has already disclosed that information. So in terms of its exposure, selling into Russia is about 2% of its revenue, its total global revenue. So that's an idea um, for you in terms of um, we own Nestle within the international portfolio. We have some indirect exposure to Russia. And then we also own a French aircraft engine manufacturer called Safran. And for aircraft engine manufacturing, uh, a key raw material input is titanium, which Russia is a big supplier of that raw material. So we're gonna have some indirect exposure via that way. Um, so we basically tried our best to go through, scrub every single one of our holdings in the international portfolio. 
Um, those are some of the um, names with indirect exposure. But we also own, for example, China Cemetery Funeral Service companies that has zero exposure to Russia. So we tried our best to scrub every single name and we estimate that the international portfolio across the board, when you weight all the different positions, we're probably gonna have about one to 2% of our revenue exposed to Russia, no more than three. So in terms of the negative impact on our estimate of intrinsic value for the whole portfolio is probably negligible. So that's, that's I just wanna say rounding error in, in terms of that. However, there is tertiary impact from a prolonged Russia-Ukraine conflict. And what that means is basically, you know, Henry talked about supply shocks, bottlenecks in terms of supply chain, persistent inflationary environment. Um, and then we couple that with a world that is potentially tightening or, you know, question mark around that. But there could be policy mistakes by central bankers. They're not perfect. And then so, so all that combined with what that does to dampen the economic you know, growth. Um, and in a worst case scenario, we could even, certain parts of the world could even be dragged into a recession. So if that, first of all, that's not our base case. If that worst case were to happen, that could have uh, a more negative impact on some of our uh, estimate of intrinsic value of some of the companies within our international portfolio. So that's just a worst case scenario. But if you look at the marketplace today, some of the current prices and valuation is already reflecting that scenario happening. So it's not happening. We think the likelihood of the worst case happening is very low, but it doesn't matter. You, you look across the board, current market prices are already reflecting that for both our current holdings, as well as some of the ideas that we have in our pipeline. So to us, it's actually, uh, the portfolio is extremely attractive today. The average discount to IV for the entire portfolio is getting close to the widest we've seen, right? So very attractive, the widest we've seen during almost the depth of the COVID crisis. That's what it is today, getting close to there. So we have no idea the duration and extent of this whole Russia-Ukraine situation, but it's definitely creating a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And that uncertainty is creating a lot of fear. And that fear is in turn creating a lot of opportunities for us right now, if you have a long enough of investment horizon. So we're actually getting really excited because of the opportunities we're seeing. And it's across the board, like all shapes and colors. It's European tech cyclicals, chemical, industrial. It's China internet, it's emerging market. It's across the board for the entire portfolio. So we're actually getting very excited in terms of the attractiveness of the uh, opportunities that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, Doug, to your point, uh, we don't, we're, you know, investing in U.S. domestic fixed income. Uh, so the only thing that can kind of be exposed to Russia really is through the commercial aircraft space, uh, which certainly made a lot of headlines. Uh, thankfully for our uh, very tiny allocation under 50 basis point, we don't have any aircraft that's uh, been leased to Russian or Ukraine, Ukrainian airlines uh, or any um other airline, um, airplanes that just happened to be in Russia and didn't, didn't get a chance to get out before the conflict started. Um, so from that perspective that uh, we kind of dodged a bullet there. Um, 
but certainly uh, there's definitely a lot of pain for, uh, being felt by the lessors. It's very unclear how things will get resolved. I'm just even learning now there's this sort of war insurance some of these lessors carry. Uh, it's all this stuff that you know we have the industry hasn't had to face in the past, so it's, it's very new, and we'll see how all that gets resolved in the. Uh, who knows how long? No one even knows the timeline of resolution here. So uh, just thankful that we didn't have any exposure, but we are certainly actively looking there to see um, if those distressed sellers coming out, uh, bonds with a lot of Russian exposure, um, will we want to potentially invest in those because they probably come out at a substantial discount right now if they were to come out. So definitely a lot of uncertainty is what I'm hearing from all three of you, which, which makes complete sense. We don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, hopefully we get a resolution soon. Uh, I just wanna thank you guys for joining me today. I think it's been very informative and I appreciate you guys uh, taking time out of your day to, to join us on the podcast. Thank you for having us.